Have you ever watched the TV show Community and wondered what Abed was talking about when he discussed films or what films the show was spoofing with different outfits or references they made? If you answered yes, this is a podcast for you. Welcome to Cool Abed Films Chat, a podcast dedicated to discussing the many film references made in the TV show community. My co-host, special guest, and I will break down a film reference from the show, and we'll discuss the plot, the time period when the films were released, favorite quotes, and interesting trivia. Thank you so much for listening, and welcome to our next episode. I love you, Molly. I've always loved you. Ditto. It's amazing, Molly. Love inside. Take it with you. See ya. Uh, today, I have a very special guest from the community Discord server. Um, I'm here with Tyler. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, hey, everyone. My name is Tyler. I'm a huge fan of community and a recent film graduate. Yes. So basically, yeah, he went to film school, graduated. So we thought it'd be interesting to have him come on and actually talk about uh, one of uh, the uh, movies that are... Um, talked about in community so the movie that we're going to be talking today about is ghost and this movie was referenced in uh the episode um i believe it's a beginner pottery and in this episode uh jeff and a few of the other green Dell seven are taking this class basically to get an easy a and the professor basically tells them this is like the easiest class to pass but the one thing that they cannot do is basically recreate the very famous pottery scene from ghosts Obviously, this fails, and Jeff gets kicked out of the class, but um, the the episode is hilarious. You should definitely go watch it, but we're actually going to talk about that movie uh, today. Uh, so, Ghost was theatrically released on July 13, 1990 by Paramount Pictures. It received mixed reviews from the critics, but it was a huge box office success, and it grossed over $505 million on a $22 million budget. It did become the highest-grossing film of 1990. And at the time, it was uh, one of it was the third highest grossing film of all time. Um, adjusted for inflation as of 2015, it is the 93rd highest uh, grossing film of all time. Despite the mixed reviews, it did go on to receive five nominations for an Academy Award. Best Picture, Best Original Score, Best Film Editing, and actually, um, and Best Original Screenplay. And uh, Whoopi Goldberg did end up winning... Um, an Academy Award for her portrayal as Oda Mae Brown, which um, I believe she definitely deserved. What do you think? Oh, I absolutely agree. She is incredible in this film. The way she juggles the emotional arc her character has and the uh, really most of the comedic relief of the movie, I think she does an excellent job. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. So this movie was directed by Jerry Zucker, who he um, has also directed uh, quite a few other films. His brother is David Zucker, who uh, gained notoriety for creating a lot of the uh, comedy spoofs like uh, Airplane. He went on to do the Naked Gun series. And Jerry Zucker went on to also uh, direct um, The First Night, which is a movie starring Richard Gere and Sean Connery, uh, talking about uh, King Arthur and Lancelot and that whole mythology. It's a pretty good film. I would definitely recommend watching it. Um, he also did my favorite, one of my favorite comedies of all time called Rat Race which came out, I believe, in 2001. And it stars John Cleese, John Lovitz, uh, Kathy Najimy, Seth Green's in it, Amy Smart, Rick and Meyer. 
Um, Whoopi Goldberg is in this as well. Uh, Rowan Atkinson. It stars a huge like cast. It's amazing. One of the funniest um, sitcoms I've ever seen. It's kind of like a screwball comedy, but it, I, I absolutely love it. So I would definitely recommend to check out Jerry Zucker's other uh, work. Um, this The screenplay itself was written by uh, Bruce Joel Rubin. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about how he and Zucker basically came up with uh, the premise and how they actually developed this plot a little later on. So um, in the film, it opens and we see uh, Sam and Molly are uh, together and they are renovating their apartment and they realize that above their apartment is this giant empty open space that they could potentially like just open up the floor and walls and make it like an amazing loft apartment. And their friend Carl is with them and he is basically there to help them renovate. And one of the first things that we hear here as he tells them like why don't we just like flip this and you can make a huge profit on it so immediately we see that like he has a good business sense like you know he has a good business head in his shoulders like he has a lot of really good sense when it comes to finances and then the next scene we see that uh they're actually on their way to their jobs and they do work in finance and this actually opens up to one of the funniest scenes in the whole movie it's right at the very beginning uh they're in the elevator do you want to talk about that part oh yeah so uh over in the elevator, uh, Carl gets a bit of a um, a bit of a cough, and immediately Sam picks up on on the bit that Carl's doing, and he says, "You know, hey, uh, did you get? Uh, how, how's that sickness going? It, is it bad?" And Carl goes, "Oh yeah, it's real contagious." And they they basically get this running bit going where they're pretending that Carl's incredibly sick in this crowded elevator, and everyone around them starting to get worried. Meanwhile, the two of them they're having the time of their life. And I think it's a really good um it's a really good way to establish their friendship that it's not just, you know, uh work buddies or helping out with tasks of the house, but they really do have this genuine chemistry together. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I th- this scene is very funny. Like the fact that they can almost read each other's minds that like as soon as Sam starts it on the bit, Carl and like they know exactly like what their role is. And to see the people around them reacting to it is really funny as well. Um, And then we also find out in this part that Molly is actually a potter and that's what she does for a living. And she has a kiln and a potter's wheel in their apartment. And so she, that's what she does. And she creates vases and all kinds of things. And uh, one of the scenes happens is that after they uh, are, and one of the things actually that we see in the, one of the first scenes at Sam's job, is that they he has to go give this huge presentation to some Japanese investors. And he gets a phone call uh, from one of his clients asking him to move like a bunch of money from one account to another. And he doesn't have time, so he asks uh, Carl to do it. And so he actually gives him his access codes for the computer, allowing him to go in and do it for him. So this really shows that there is a lot of trust between Sam and Carl here. And so uh, Carl's like, yeah, absolutely, no, no problem. And they do it and then we go to um the next scene where they're back at their apartment and they talk and then they end up going to bed but then molly wakes up and she goes out and she begins making a vase on her potter wheel and sam wakes up and comes out and talks to her and she basically says i couldn't sleep and so he comes up behind her and says hey like do you mind if i help you she's like yeah sure that's fine and so he sits behind her she gets his hands wet so he can start working with the clay as well. And they begin to make this uh, piece of pottery. 
And as they're doing it, like they begin kissing and the potter, like the actual like uh, pot itself falls over and it's ruined, but they don't care because this leads to them end up, you know, kissing and then eventually making love, which I think is really interesting. It's really setting up their, their, the romance between them that like, it's more to them. It's more important than like, you know, a broken pot or um, not finishing this, this vase that she had begun to do. What do you think? Uh, Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that this scene has remained iconic for 30 years now. I think it's the best scene in the movie. I mean, between their performances, the camera work, the Righteous Brothers song, it all comes together so well. And it really does help without even necessarily the audience being conscious of it. It really does implant this idea of the material versus the emotional and spiritual that really is very present throughout the film. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. So yeah, after that scene, we go to Sam in the office the next day where he is checking over the files that Carl worked on the previous night and he finds a couple issues in there and realizes that in one or two of the accounts, there is just way too much money. Uh, Carl pops in. He says, hey, what's up? Sam lets him know and Carl decides to offer that. He says like, okay, I'll investigate them. You don't got to worry about this. But Sam insists on doing them himself. And we see that Carl looks a little worried. Um, Later that night, Sam and Molly are on a date where they are seeing Macbeth. And on their way home, they begin talking about, you know, the future, whether or not they'll one day get married. Molly expresses some concern about Sam's attachment to uh, her, his work, his, um, his own vulnerability. Particularly the fact that whenever she says, I love you, he usually replies, ditto. Uh, And they're about to have this whole conversation, but then they get interrupted by a robber who gets into a scuffle with Sam and eventually shoots and kills him. Um, And here we get one of the most interesting scenes in the film, in my opinion, where when Sam is initially shot, the robber runs away and we see Sam run after him. And we don't necessarily realize that Sam is dead. We don't actually see the effect of the gunshot until Sam turns around and sees his own body on the ground. After which, we go into this really interesting series of more abstract images uh, in the film that express Sam processing his own death. For example, we see him suddenly waking up in bed and finding that uh, Molly Demi Moore is... um, a clay statue and it culminates in one where he wakes up in bed you almost get this idea that maybe it was all a dream he's still alive but suddenly a light appears above him and he's back in the street looking at his own body and i feel like this scene is so it really does stand out because most of the filmmaking aside from a few of the uh more supernatural ghost moments with sam discovering his powers a lot of the filmmaking and a lot of the storytelling in this film takes a more objective approach. It doesn't necessarily go very metaphorical or abstract. And in this scene, it goes all in on the, on the metaphorical filmmaking. Uh, What do you think of this scene? So one of the things that really stood out to me, like you said, is that um, as soon as the gunshot goes off, you see the robber running away and then you see Sam running. And so immediately you're like, Oh, okay. So like, maybe it's not Sam that died. Maybe. So if you don't know anything, maybe you think it's Molly that died, you know, maybe he shot Molly on accident. And so you see him run and then he turns around and what you're saying happened with all of the 
flashes. But one of the things that really like stood out to me is that he like he's hearing these voices in his head too. Like he hears Molly say like "Don't leave me," and like he also is seeing different things. And like he's in the ambulance, and then it's like clear that he dies. So like I personally don't think he died immediately. I think he died on the way to the hospital because he's hearing Molly speak. And then once he gets to the hospital, then they call it. So I think he was alive for a little bit, but he was fading and he couldn't, he couldn't get back to her because, you know, like, obviously he was fatally wounded. Um, so I thought that was really interesting uh, there. And I think it also leads up perfectly to him getting to the hospital because at that point, like, yes, he realizes he's dead, but I don't know that he's fully accepted it yet, if you know what I mean. I would definitely agree with that. I think he doesn't really come to terms with it until he's actually in the hospital and an elderly man walks up to him and says, oh, it's, uh, it's your first time? Okay, you'll get used to it. And we realize that the elderly man speaking to Sam is also a ghost. He expresses that you know he's still here because down the hall his wife is battling an illness. He's waiting on her to die. She's fighting it, but soon they'll be able to be together again. Uh, the, two, the two ghosts, Sam and the elderly man together, watch another man on an operating table die and immediately go up to heaven. The, uh, the elderly ghost makes a brief remark about, oh, I hate to see it when they go the other way. A little bit of foreshadowing for later. Right. And, and then uh, Sam looks over and the elderly ghost is gone, implying that uh, his wife has died. And this is the first glimpse we really get into when a ghost's business in the world of the living is finished. Right. Yep. I totally so, agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So after this, we, uh, we see Sam's funeral. Uh, Sam is mostly just watching from the sidelines because, you know, what can he do? He's a ghost. But he, um, he's taken aback because he looks over and he sees a woman waving to him. And this is the first time, at least in the film, and very likely in the time that he's spent as well, that since the hospital that anyone has interacted with him, he looks over and sees this woman waving. He, it's almost like it's both a shock, but also kind of a glimmer of hope. And then he, he sees her walk into a tombstone and he realizes that she's also a ghost and that is where she is buried. Right. And, yeah. Because yeah, it literally says like her name that like how like when she died and like her tombstone. Yeah. Because it shows I think like she had died like 20 years before before so clearly she was still there for a reason as well like she didn't have she still had unfinished business because otherwise she would be gone yeah and at that point we kind of get the idea that you know this business will not always be wrapped up easily and maybe a ghost business won't be wrapped up and they'll be stuck there just this little subtle hint at that sort of thing um so after the funeral sam is back at the apartment with uh molly and molly's trying to create some pottery but She's she's still grieving Sam. She's still upset. And Molly effectively talks to Sam. She doesn't realize that he's literally standing next to her, but more just in an abstract sense, talking to Sam. She says that that she can still still feel him. And it's really this very emotional scene. And this is where we start getting the um more of where their relationship will go throughout the film of them trying to communicate without necessarily being able to. Um, then Sam does try to respond to Molly. She can't hear it. However, 
Molly's cat, Floyd, hisses as if he can sense Sam's presence. And this is really one of the first times that we see Sam as a ghost being able to interact with something in the mortal world. Um, Sam stares at Floyd for long enough, and Floyd screams and jumps down. Uh, We go to the next scene, and Carl and Molly are going through Sam's things. Molly wants to keep as much as possible, even things that she may not have kept if Sam was still around. For example, she uh, decides to hold on to some concert tickets, and Sam even remarks, uh, "Honey, you hated that concert." Like she uh, even she even tried to keep like his half-eaten thing of uh, Rolaids for his heartburn. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So it's like showing that like anything that he touched, anything that he had interaction with, he wants. Absolutely. Uh, Carl, more or less, at this point, kind of points out that Molly is staying a bit too attached or at least from his perspective, she is. And he convinces Molly that, you know, she should take a walk, take a bit of the edge off. And the two of them leave the apartment to go walk around. Well, one of the things that we also see here is that in his items is the book that he had all his codes in. And Sam tries to convince her to like give it away, to put it in the box that he's going to take. And she's like, no, no, I want to keep this. So she puts it in her box and it's like a shoe box. It's different than the other boxes that he has. And as they're leaving the apartment, he picks up that box to take with his as if he's going to donate it. And she's like, no, no, that's the things I'm keeping, remember? Like, as if she thinks, like, oh, like, he's just forgetful and silly, basically. But this is where we kind of start to see that Carl's acting a bit odd. Like, even in this, like, scene with Molly. Um, And so Sam tries to follow them out the door, but he can't because, like as he's like putting his arm through, like you could tell like it's having some kind of react, like he's having some kind of reaction to it because he's not used to going through doors. And one of the things that the elderly ghost had said to him in the hospital, it's he literally said to him, you will get used to doors. And so Sam didn't know what that like meant then, but now he's understanding that like at some point he's going to have to go through a door because he's not human anymore. He can't just open a door and walk through. He's going to have to pass through the door. But as he is getting ready to leave, uh, the same robber that killed him has a key and uses it on their apartment door and he comes in. And so Sam begins to really worry because he's starting to realize that this is more than that was just more than a random accident that he got shot or robbed on the city street. And so um, the robber starts looking through things and Sam is like yelling at him. But obviously the robber can't hear him. And he's like, what do you want? Like, who are you? Who sent you? And so he's really starting to worry. And then as Robert is looking through things, Molly comes back and Sam is now even more terrified because he doesn't want Molly in the apartment with the robber on the loose because he doesn't know what he's going to what this robber will do if Molly is in there. And so um, he's trying to figure out, like, how can I get, you know, their attention? And he finally realizes that, like, he's already been able to interact with Floyd, her cat. And so he literally screams and the cat jumps, hisses. And actually attacks the robber, scratches him across the face, and the robber runs out of the apartment because he has been scared by the cat. So this is again showing that this cat can somehow sense or feel Sam's presence, maybe even hear him, because he's always responded when Sam yells. Um, And so Sam at this point actually takes a running leap, goes through the door, and he follows him onto the subway, um, which the robber has... um, 
cho- like chosen to take. I think like, you know, that's the way that he gets there. And so we, I think we realize here that he lives in Brooklyn. And so um, Sam and Molly lived in Manhattan. And so he's taking the, you know, the subway back to his borough. Um, and I, I think a really interesting scene happens here as well, where um, he's on the train and he's just standing there. And all of a sudden, um, another guy, man looks at him and he gets up and he starts yelling at Sam and we realize there's another ghost on this train. And this ghost is angry <laughs> and he's yelling at Sam and telling him to get off. And so, like, he's doing all kinds of things to Sam. Like, he's literally putting Sam's head through, uh, like, through the train. He's, he's literally knocking things out of people's hands. So he's actually interacting with the physical world, which Sam cannot do. And he tells uh, Sam, get off my train. And so we really get to see here that what we're dealing here, uh, what we're dealing with there is a poltergeist. And he's an angry ghost. Like something clearly has happened in his past to make him angry. And so um, he tells him, like, stay off the subway. Like, this is my domain. Like, you can't do this. You know, you can't ride the train. And so uh, Sam gets off and he follows the killer um, up to his apartment. And um, he goes in and he overhears uh, the robber uh, call um, somebody on the other side and he said I couldn't get it but I'll go back in a few days and so now Sam is starting to realize that this that he was definitely set up he was murdered it wasn't just a coincidence and so at this point you're starting to see that Sam is actually putting these things together and that he's basically starting to investigate his own murder which I think is a really interesting concept to have you know a ghost actually be the one to do this kind of into like this kind of research or normally it would be the person that's left alive to do that for the, p- the person that died. So I think it's a really interesting concept here that the writer, like how the writers and the directors like chose to do that. What do you think? I absolutely agree. I mean, one of the things that's so great about this film is that it has really tight pacing. There's a lot that happens in this story, but no plot point feels like it takes too much or too little time to get across. And I think a big part of that is that because Sam is a ghost, you can have all of these revelations and this investigation happening in the first half of the film, whereas normally you'd have to spread that out over the full three acts, or at least through the first two. Uh, here you're able to do that all early on, because even when Sam actually finds out what's happening, he's a ghost. He can't really do anything about it. He has to find a way to take action, which really does... like In that way, the typical mystery plot feels a bit less typical because we get a lot of that out of the way early on. And then it becomes about how he's going to stop what's happening. Right. Um, And so he leaves the apartment at this point because he realizes that this robber was paid by somebody because he was not working alone. And as he's kind of wandering the streets of Brooklyn, he sees um, a, um, a business for like a psychic medium where it says, like, you know, for, like, this amount of money, we can contact the dead for you. So he goes in thinking that whoever is, like, running this business can help him. Because at this point, all he wants to do is get this information to Molly to let her know she's in danger and to be, like, aware and on the lookout. And so he goes in and um, he immediately sees this woman um, who is waiting to see Otome Brown, who is basically the, the psychic medium here. And it's her two sisters who help her run the business. And they basically tell this lady, like, you know, um, our sister is like the best in the world and she's going to help you. 
And then they open this closet where there's clearly like a, a false wall in the back where Oda Mae Brown is going to walk in. It's like a door to walk in and then she'll like appear like a magic trick, but it's empty. And then they close it and open it again. And there's Oda Mae Brown, which is the iconic Whoopi Goldberg in this like gold lame like gown, you know, like, like from, you know, the chest all the way down to the floor. And she comes in and then she's clear at this point, like she's clearly faking being able to talk to this, this lady's loved ones. Because she immediately starts asking her, like, questions, like, almost asking, like, her to give her the answers, like, oh, like, you know, um, does your, does your, did your husband know any, anybody by this name? And she lists off, like, 17 names before she finally lands on one. And then she's like, yeah, yeah, that's the lady, you know? And so, at this point, this is when Sam begins to realize that she's a fraud. And so, he actually starts doing play-by-play, which is actually, to me, was quite humorous in the scene. Where he's basically like she's saying something and Sam is re- responding, and what is amazing in this film is that Whoopi Goldberg, like her reactions without even saying anything, just what is coming across her face and her body, like her body language, she's clearly reacting to everything that Sam's saying. So what we can see here as the audience is that she can actually hear dead people, but she didn't know she could actually hear it because she had always pretended to hear it. So when a real dead person actually talked to her. She was like completely taken aback because she had no idea. And so she thinks she's losing her mind. Her sisters think she's losing her mind. And she even says like, I'm losing my mind. And um, like Sam responds to that. And she's just like, oh my gosh, like what is going on? And so like, I just personally wanted that scene there is to me again, one of the funniest scenes in the film. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the writing is super strong, but I think the real comedy of the scene does come down to uh, uh, Patrick Swayze's vocal delivery with his mm-hmm. snide remarks. And I think Whoopi Goldberg's uh, physical acting and her facial expressions really do sell the scene because for the most part, she isn't reacting verbally to uh, Sam's comments. That doesn't happen until later in the scene. But her facial expressions, whenever she hears him make a comment, are so funny. Right, It, it exactly. really is telling why she got that Oscar. Well, like, there, there's one part where um, the lady says, yeah, yeah, like, my... So, first of all, she's trying to talk to that husband, Jose. And then she she's basically had t- has told Otome Brown that also, like the, like, the name Maria is, like, special. And so Otome Brown's like, oh, there's two of them? Yeah, I'm sorry, I can only do one. So if you want the second one, you're, I'm going to have to charge you more money. And she's like, yeah, okay, how much? And she's like, uh, $20. And this is where Patrick Swayze's character is like, oh, yeah, of course, fleece her out of every, like, scent. And that's where, like, you really see her start to respond, like Whoopi Goldberg. And it's very funny because, like, those snide remarks, like, they're getting to her, too, because somebody is, like, you know, also bashing her top of her thing. She can't see them. And she's like, am I going insane? And it's it's absolutely perfect. Um, And so at this point, like, she freaks out. The lady leaves because she's like, get out of here, like, go. And so she starts, she, at this point, she realizes that there is somebody there. And so she basically asks him, what do you want? And he says, I need you to warn um, Molly about that she's in danger. And then this is where we find out that the name of the robbers names Willie Lopez. Um, That's who killed him. Like he even knows the address. Like he knows everything. And he's like, you need to tell her that it was a setup and that it was murder. And Otome's like, nope, nope. Like I'm not getting involved. 
because I think it's at this point she realizes that this is in her neighborhood and she doesn't want to be involved in this whatsoever because she may end up being in danger herself and putting her sisters in danger. Oh, wait, I skipped a whole part, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, that that's because that's when. Um... OK, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Uh, I'll just edit that part out. OK. Okay. Um, this is but okay. Yeah, so Oda May really does at this point. She realizes she really can hear dead people, and that they're act. She does actually have a gift. But one of the things that's not really mentioned, like it is mentioned, is that her mother has told her she has a gift, but she didn't believe her, and she always pretended and faked it. But then she realizes that her mother was right, and she actually did have this gift all along. So Sam tells her, "You need to call Molly and just warn her that she's in danger." And so she does thinking like I'll this this will be over I can do this and not worry have to worry about it well Molly hangs up on her and doesn't want to hear it thinks that like she's being like taken advantage of and Sam tells um Odame he's like you need to go to her house and actually convince her and Odame's like I'm not doing that she's like leave me alone so she goes back to her apartment she's trying to sleep and Sam is in her apartment in her bedroom singing um Henry the uh, Henry the eighth I am uh repeatedly over and over and like clearly she has been driven insane she picks up her pillow she throws it and she's like fine so um the very next day she goes to molly's apartment uh to where sam and molly shared her apartment she yells up and she just starts saying things to molly that only um sam would know and she basically tells her things like you know the sweater that you knitted in your closet's four sizes too big um, talking about like p- the pictures that were taken, like only things Sam would know. And um, she starts to leave because she really like, she tells Sam like, she doesn't care. And I'm, I'm out of this, like I'm leaving. And at this point, Molly does actually come downstairs, open the door and she's wearing that sweater that um, she had knitted. And she um, invites like, invites her to coffee and they go and they sit and they talk. And, um, she's trying to give her this information. is trying to give her this information. And Molly, again, is not really listening or wanting to believe because, you know, it's too hard to think that, you know, the person that you love the most in this world has been taken away from you. Like it's died. And now somebody's like basically trying to like scam you. And, um, she's leaving and Sam's like, tell her, like, tell her that I love her. And so that's what Odame does. And she says, Sam told me to tell you that, that, um, he loves you. And Molly turns around and says like, he would never say that to me. Like, you're clearly a fraud. And so she turns to t- walk away again. And Sam finally tells Adam, tell her I said ditto. And so she does. And at this point, Molly, like, stops in her tracks, look, turns back around and looks. And, like, you can see, like, one tear, like, str- like start to stream down her face, which is, like, amazing, you know. And then she uh, realizes that this, re- like, Sam really is talking to her. And so she actually invites um, Odome back into her apartment. And, um... This is where um, Sam tries to convince Odame to like say word for word everything he's saying. And at this point, this is when Sam tells her, Willie Lopez murdered me. Here's his address. You need to go to the police. And Odame like stops. She's like, no, like I'm done because she figures out that actually Willie's apartment is in her neighborhood and she does not want to get her sisters or herself involved in like in any danger. And so um, she says that she's done. Yeah, and um, I think this is especially a solid turning point in the movie because we almost think that um, maybe this will all work out fine, that, you know, 
Sam has been able to connect with Molly. Oda May is being really helpful. But understandably so, Oda May decides that she is done. Now, after all this, Molly is pretty concerned and confused. So she goes to the one person who has been there for her through all this, Carl. And tells him everything that's happened, everything that she's been told. And he more or less completely dismisses her. He says stuff like, okay, I get that you miss Sam, but Otome is a con woman. She's probably trying to take advantage of you. I mean, come on, you're saying that he's a ghost. But to ease your mind, I'll get to the bottom of it. Um, now, at this point, Carl leaves uh, Molly at the apartment, and Sam decides to follow him since, you know, he figures he wants to see what Carl can find. Carl actually goes to the killer, Willie Lopez's apartment, and confronts him. And we find out here that Carl was the one who set up everything. He tells Willie that Willie needs to kill Otome to get rid of her because she knows. Uh, and we learn the reason that Carl had this whole plot, which is that he has $4 million of laundered money stuck in a computer right now, and that in Sam's possessions are the codes that he needs to transfer it over to an account that he can use. And he needs this because he owes some drug dealers money. Sam at this point is incredibly betrayed. He feels so hurt because his best friend is the one who's behind his murder. Um, and I think... Yeah. Well, also, um, Sam, or Carl, tells Willie in the apartment, he says, you were only supposed to like scare him into giving you his wallet because that the codes were in the wallet and Willie basically says, well, that one was for, like, that one was for free. Like I did that for you. Like basically saying like, I went above and beyond and I murdered him because it would make it easier on you. So like at this point you can see that like Carl really didn't want Sam dead, but at this point there's nothing he can do about it now. And so he's saying, well, we already killed one person. So we got to get rid of Oda May because she's really the only other person that could ruin this. If she really is talking to Sam, like, you know, Molly is claiming here. So I thought that was really interesting as well that there may, you know, there's a little bit of conflict there for Carl that, you know, he, all he wanted was the access to the money, but he didn't want Sam dead. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at this point we got to give a shout out to Tony Goldwyn who yes. gives an incredible <laughs> performance as Carl, because we really do see a fully conflicted guy here. Like he really does pull off the, uh, the comedic, lovable best friend but he also pulls off the um the the man who is trying to plot and scheme his way out of this who becomes increasingly more desperate to the point of eventually becoming an attempted murderer and i think what's impressive is that not only does he go between these two modes so easily but it never feels like they aren't the same person which i think is something that gets yeah. lost in a lot of performances like this yeah i mean it was very good performance and like you said too that he's doing a fine line between you know being very controlled like trying to prove he has it all together that like everything is fine and then like you're starting to see him come like slowly unhinged you know to the point then at the end of the film where he's just like com like completely lost it and then then again at the very end after everything has happened where like he also again is still showing that he's conflicted that like there was still a little bit of humanity left in him. And so I thought it like he did such a phenomenal job in this role. And he was very young even back then because that film came out in 1990. And um, I knew him from the, his role in Scandal where he played the president. And 
the role there, like he was, a, he's a great actor even now, but to, to have that much control, I think he was like in his late twenties, early thirties when he did um, this movie um, is like phenomenal that, you know, he's able to pull that off even, you know, as like a very young actor. I totally agree. He really is so impressive here. Um, so at that point, uh, speaking of Tony Goldman, uh, Carl then breaks into the apartment and gets the codes from the box of stuff that Molly had saved. Meanwhile, at the same time, Molly does decide to go to the police, where we get a great little appearance from uh, Stephen Root as the detective. Uh, very nice to see him there. And I think pre, definitely pre-office space, so before yeah. he really got popular. Um, so Molly tries to tell uh, the detective, Stephen Root, as well as this one other officer everything that she knows about Willie Lopez and Oda May and all that. And naturally she's dismissed very quickly, especially by the first off by the one officer there. Um, as the officer says, you know, I feel for you, but I don't have time for this. You're talking about ghosts. Stephen Root on the other hand does decide, okay, I'll humor her. She seems very insistent on this. I will do a quick check and to see, to see if we have any files on either Willie Lopez or Otome Brown. And what he finds is that Otome has a very big record and Willie has none. And he tells Molly, you know, it's not impossible, it's not uncommon that Otome may have read the obituary, stood outside, gone through a few trash cans, and is now trying to prey on you. And at this point, Molly's faith in the whole... Uh, Sam being a ghost thing is more or less broken. Um, Carl then likewise goes to Molly's apartment later that night and apologizes for not believing her while, while she has more or less stopped believing herself. He asks to come in for coffee and Sam, who's watching this, realizes, oh, okay, so now Carl is also trying to get with Molly. Um... Uh, he asks Molly to go get some uh, cream for the coffee. She turns around, and while she's not looking, he pours coffee on himself. That way he has to take off his shirt, and he attempts to seduce her. Um, while, they're, while they are being intimate, she tells Carl about Otome's police report file. And having learned this, Carl decides to then move in and starts uh, uh, kissing her. Sam, enraged, jumps through them and accidentally knocks a picture of himself and Molly off the table, which distracts Molly, and she tells Carl that she can't kiss him and that he needs to leave. Um, now, at this point, Sam has learned, not only can he kind of interact with the real world, such as with the cat, but he is capable of affecting real-world objects in a tangible way, but he's not sure how. He tries again by knocking over a vase, but it doesn't work. His hand just goes right through it. But he does remember someone else who knows how to pull this off. And that is the poltergeist on the subway. Sam goes back there and finds him. And although the poltergeist initially tries to get rid of him again, where there is a great line. Um, I, I think you know the line better than I do. <laughs> well, it's so funny because he's, he literally like spends probably at least an hour looking for this poltergeist. So he like goes on multiple trains and he finally finds him. 
And he just walks up to him and he's like, hey, I want to talk to you. And the guy's like, get off. And like, he's screaming at him. He's doing the exact same things that he did before. But this time, like, Sam's not at all scared. And he's just standing his ground. And he's like, I'm not going anywhere. And he tells him. And finally, the ghost just like stops and stares at him. He's like, you're a stubborn asshole, aren't you? And it's making me laugh so hard that this guy like finally like is kind of giving Sam a tiny little bit of respect because he can't scare him where he probably could scare other ghosts off the train before this guy's not going anywhere and so the you can tell the poltergeist is kind of like bemused at sam like not giving into like you know his temper tantrum of like you know getting off the train yeah yeah for sure um and the uh, the poltergeist by the way played by uh, the character actor vincent chavelli very good performance for a otherwise small role that does have a pretty big impact on the film because here we have this great scene. It almost feels like something out of like Unbreakable or one of the Marvel movies where the poltergeist is attempting to teach Sam how to move physical objects. And here we actually get more of a dissection of the film's themes because the poltergeist tells Sam, you're not going to be able to do this. You're trying to move these objects with your fingers. You need to move them with your feelings. Which again goes back to that idea of the material as opposed to the emotional and spiritual the poltergeist expresses that he's able to move things because of his rage and he starts mocking sam for not being able to do the same when sam gets angry he's able to kick a can and he is now capable of moving physical objects because he tapped into his emotions something that he never really did when he was alive well this also Um, showed that the only reason that he could knock that uh, uh picture frame off the table in the first place is because he was enraged so he yeah. is starting to realize that anger is a motivating factor also for him. Yes, yes, for sure. Um, and we also get a really solid moment with the poltergeist where um, he alludes to the reason that he is still a ghost, which is the fact that... Um, so the poltergeist mentions, you know, I was pushed. I, I was pushed. They said that I jumped, what, do you think I I jumped myself? Are you crazy? And he flies into this rage, and Sam then leaves. But what we actually pick up from this, and what the writer and director have said since, is that the poltergeist is actually someone who killed himself, who jumped onto the train tracks. And the implication here is that the only thing stopping the poltergeist from moving on is that he can't admit to himself that he ended his own life, that he can't be honest with himself, which is where we kind of see that, you know, as opposed to the elderly ghost in the hospital who's waiting for his wife to die, the reason a ghost may still be around isn't necessarily always a tangible physical thing, but it can be something internal. It can be something emotional. And that that's where the real resolution lies. Um, So after this scene, now that... Sam has more connection with the physical world and the supernatural world. He goes back to Otome and now he finds that she's actually talking to the dead. A whole bunch of ghosts are there waiting, attempting to contact her and their loved ones. And he, he finds this very interesting, especially because he sees one of the ghosts walk into Otome's body and forcibly possess her for a moment to talk to his wife. However, she forces the ghost out and that ghost falls over because we learn that possessing a body drains that a ghost's energy for a moment. 
Um, at this point, however, Otome has forced everyone out of the room so she can talk to Sam when Willie shows up and attempts to kill her. Sam says that if she helps him deal with Carl and get this whole thing worked out, then she'll be safe from Willie, she'll be safe from Carl, and she'll be left alone by Sam and Molly. And here we get one of my favorite parts of the whole film, which is the bank scene. So, Sam convinces Otome to get the money out of the fake bank account that Carl made to launder the $4 million. Well, and real quick, I- before this even happens, we do see a scene where Carl is talking to the drug dealers. And he is told by the drug dealers, you need to have this money transferred up to us by like 4 p.m. Or like, I think he said five minutes to four, something like that. And he said, put it in the name Rita Miller, and it's going to be transferred to this offshore banking account in like Nassau, Bahamas. So Sam, or Carl has already set all this up. And Sam overhears all of this. So this is how he knows about the fake bank account. And this is at the point where he has determined that he is going to do everything in his power to stop Carl's plans. That Carl will never see a dime of that money. That Carl will never be able to basically complete his goals. And so this is where we see like what Sam's like true thing, like keeping him there is that he needs to see this through, that he is going to stop Carl from hurting anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the plan that Sam comes up with then to deal with that is that he has Otome dress up and pretend to be Rita Miller at the bank. That way they can get a cashier's check for the amount of $4 million. And there's so much good comedic banter between Sam and uh, Oda May and the bank tellers. And I do think that this scene is a solid example, not just of the comedic talents of Patrick Swayze and Whoopi Goldberg, but also where we see uh, Jerry Zucker kind of tapping into that comedy background he had Mm -hmm. helping his brother direct Airplane. And I think that it does help add some levity to what's otherwise a very heavy story. Yeah, this Um, scene is really funny. Like, one of my favorite parts in the scene is where Rita, so, you know, obviously, Odomi Brown is Rita Miller. They ask her to, you know, sign it, sign this paper, and she signs her, her real name. Like, oh, I'm sorry, I accidentally signed the wrong name. And the lady's like, what? Like, how do you sign the wrong name? <laughs> so she has to get a new one. She signs it Rita Miller. And then she finally makes it to the person that's, you know, going to give her the money. And he's like, well, how would you like this? She goes, oh, 10s and 20s. And he, like, stares at her like she has lost her mind. <laughs> that she wants $4 million in 10s and 20s. And Patrick Swayze's character, he just, like, stares at her. And he's like, a cashier's check. Ask for a cashier's check. Like, he can't even believe she said that. She goes, oh, a cashier's check will be fine. And he's like, and so you can tell, like, oh, this look of relief comes over the banker's face. And like, oh, yeah, okay, that'll be fine. You know, it's so, it's so well acted. Like, Webby Goldberg does such a great job here of pretending, like, to, like, fumble her way through this, and somehow she still manages to pull this off, even though there are so many things where she probably should have been caught or not been able to do it. Yeah, for sure. Like, the the writing and the performances and the direction here make this not only an incredibly funny scene, but also a little bit tense, as we have this ticking clock going for when the transfer needs to happen. And it ultimately culminates when Carl is ready to transfer the money and discovers that the account has been closed. At the same time, Molly arrives at the bank and she sees Otome Brown leaving, but when she asks to tell her about that, she's told that it was Rita Miller. Uh, on the way home from the bank now, Otome is pondering, okay, what can I do with this money? I have $4 million. This is so great. And Sam tells her, look, that's blood money. That's stolen money. 
you you can't keep that. You gotta you gotta donate that. Donate it to some nuns over there. They're working with the Salvation Army. It's the right thing to do. And Otome is really reluctant about this at first, but uh, Sam convinces her to do this, and she's a little angry about it and and storms off. But well, also, like th- this whole scene is hilarious because she's arguing out loud with Sam in front of these nuns who look at her like she is insane because she's oh, like, yeah. yelling at Sam, and then she can't let go of the check. Because, like, she doesn't want to give it up, but she finally gives it, and she does storm off. And one of a really funny scene is that the nun, the nuns finally look at the check, and the one passes out because she realizes how much money it is. Oh, it's such a great little moment. It really is. Um, but at this point, the plan is complete. The money is out of Carl's hands. Otome has done what she promised. So Sam goes back to the... Uh, well, Sam goes back to the office first, where Carl is freaking out and trying to figure out what to do because he lost the money. Sam starts doing some poltergeist-type stuff and starts taunting Carl and saying that he's going to die along with Willie. Carl, we see chairs moving around, we see computers turning on and off, and then we finally see when Carl asks, Who are you? A well, the, screen- what he does on the computer first is he writes murder on it. Yes. Then yes. Carl's like, who is doing this? And then Sam types Sam like repeatedly like a hundred times on the computer screen. Yeah. And at this point, Carl realizes, holy crap, Molly was telling the truth. Sam is a ghost and he knows what's happening. So Carl goes to meet Molly and asks her what Sam has said to her and is really starting to act irrational and crazy here. And and uh, so Sam is watching all this happen, and he's just very smug about it. He's happy. He, he's determined, okay, he's won. However, Molly lets slip that she saw Oda May at the bank, and Carl realizes what happened. So Molly has to leave the room for a bit. She goes upstairs, and Carl, realizing that Sam is in the room, says, okay, you need to get the money back by 11 p.m., or I will kill Molly. And the, I, I love the way, by the way, that he says the time, because before he can really give all the details, Molly walks back in the room and, and he says to her, okay, I got to go take care of some things, but I'll be back around 11 PM. And he starts looking over his shoulder because he's talking to Sam. And I just think that's a really nice little moment. Yeah. Um, but so then now that Sam knows that um, there's legitimate trouble happening, he goes to Otome's house to warn her and he gets her and her sisters to evacuate just as Willie and Carl show up. However, when they finally get up to the apartment, they realize that Otome is not there. Carl goes to look downstairs and Willie decides to search the apartment more, but he's tormented by Sam. And this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie because it is effectively the same kind of haunting ghost scene that we've seen plenty of times at this point. Poltergeist, the exorcist it's happened in plenty of movies, but here it's yeah. different because our protagonist is the ghost that's doing the haunting. And I think it's such an interesting uh, reversal of the roles. Yeah, because we're actually rooting for the ghost to, like, to, to torture that guy. Like, we want the ghost to win in this scenario. <laughs> yeah, it's like it takes a traditional haunting scene and almost makes it more of like a superhero action scene. And I think it really is re- so great. And it also is just very cathartic to see Willie get... Uh, haunted and tormented by Sam like this after the whole movie has gone down. Um, 
Sam actually chases Willie downstairs and into the street where Willie is first hit by a, um, it, I believe it's a car first. Yeah, he's hit, I think, by a convertible. Yep. Yeah. First, he's hit by a car and he's a little wounded. Then he's hit by a truck and dies. And we get a very similar scene to what happened earlier where Willie stands up from, the, from getting hit by the truck and he's a little disoriented. And then he looks over and sees his body still on the hood. And he, and he looks over at Sam, and Sam just looks at him like, yep, you are dead. Um, one, of the cool, one of the coolest things here is just showing like the attention to detail is that the ghost no longer has the scratches on his eyes from the cat to show that, that like, that's, his, that's his, you know, his spirit without the injury. Yeah, yeah. And I think that like little atten- the little details like that really do help uh, sell this movie because... While it is a very popular movie, and while one might not think it just from the reputation of, you know, the the romance film with the pottery scene and the ghost, it is a very high-concept film when you actually think about it. And I think the attention to detail on the behalf of both the writer and uh, Zucker as director, I think that really does help make this high-concept plot work in a very marketable and uh, very accessible way. Um, and at this point, we finally get payoff to what the elderly ghost mentioned when he said when hate to see them go the other way because willie is standing in the street when all these shadows rise up from the ground and they have this horrible uh moan which we we've actually learned is um the sound of babies crying played backwards and slowed um and it really is just this awful, awful sound. It's a great, great sound effect for the film. Um, and we see these shadows rise up, and they drag Willie's ghost down to hell. And that, and now one of our antagonists is done. Uh, what do you think of the shadow scene? Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Like, like you said, that sound was horrific to hear, to listen to. So, I just. Yeah, it was so creepy. And also, like, this is, again, you see that when you're done, you either go to heaven and you get that the beautiful lights and you get, like, the little particles, you know, like, just coming down. Or you get the horrible death where the shadows come up and they drag you to hell. So, like, I thought this was a really interesting scene. I also really enjoyed the fact that, like, when, like, he ran out, it's clear that it had just rained. Everything is wet out there. And so it's also adding to, like, just a creepy atmosphere, you know, as well. For sure, for sure. And we do have to give a quick shout out to uh, Rick Aviles as yes. Willie Lopez because uh, not often talked about, smaller role in the film, but his performance is really good, especially this the fear in his eyes as he's dragged away by these shadows. He, he does a very excellent job for not many lines and not that much screen time. Um, there's a bit of trivia here that it actually kind of has a community reference. So the character actor Luis Guzman who like has a statue, you know, of him basically in the community uh, episodes. Um, that when that movie came out, people thought that it was him. So he used to get stopped in the street, and they would tell him like, "Oh, we loved you in Ghost when you like, you know, tormented Patrick Swayze, or when you killed him." And he's like, "That's not me." And he said <laughs> this happened a lot in the '90s. That like even today, some people still think that was him. And he's like, that's Rick Avilas. It's not me. But he's like, thank you for thinking that's, you know, a great performance. So I thought that was very interesting since it, since it did have a community reference there. Yeah. Wow. I, I, 
I didn't know that. I actually, yeah. <laughs> when when I watched this movie, I did um, I did look up to see if it was Luis Guzman because they have a very similar like facial structure. Exactly. Yeah, I know. I I get it, but he really said like people even now think it was him, and he's like, "That's not me. I promise." <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's really cool. I didn't know that. Um, so yeah, after Willie gets dragged down to hell, uh, Sam and Otome go back to the apartment, and they're outside Molly's door. But Molly just doesn't believe Otome. Molly's not going to let her in. However, uh, Otome starts to get Molly's attention because Sam says to make a comment about um, Molly's outfit, which Otome can't see, and also details about the outfit's history that she would not know. Um, and this starts to get Molly's attention, but what really seals the deal is that um, Sam says to Otome, slide a penny under the door. She does this. And then Sam levitates the penny in, in front of Molly and puts it in her hand, which is a sign between them for good luck. Um, Molly, amazed by this, lets Otome in and calls the police on Carl. Um, and here is where we really get this great moment for, um, for Otome, because throughout the whole film, Otome has been sort of pushed into helping Sam. First, she did it because she couldn't take uh, Sam's constant singing, and later she had to do it uh, to get Sam to leave her alone and also to, to secure her own safety from Willie and Carl. However, right. here... Uh, well, um, even at the very beginning, like she opens... Her part of the film is her conning people for money. Yeah. She, so we really do see that she is a much more selfish person. She doesn't want to give that check away. Uh, she is conning people. And she didn't believe she has these powers. But here, without being asked and uh, unprompted, or loosely unprompted, a little bit by the conversation, but no one specifically asks her, she volunteers her body to be possessed by Sam for a moment. That way, um, Sam and Molly can share one last dance. And this this is... Oh, this part here is because Sam and Molly are having a conversation after all of this has happened in which they say, they both say that they wish Sam was alive just one more time. So they could just touch each other and hug each other. And Otome is witnessing this. And you can tell like, she is definitely like feeling terrible for them that she's witnessing this like love between them that they can't, like they can't do anything about it because you know, he's dead and she lost basically the love of her life. And this really pushes Otome into being like, you know what? We know that I can be possessed. So just possess me and I'll give you your final wish. And so to see how far she's come is amazing. It really is. And I I do think that like Whoopi Goldberg's performance here is one of her best by far. And she really did earn that Oscar because she sells this arc so well. Um, And then we get this beautiful scene where when Sam possesses Otome's body, we don't see Otome. We see Patrick Swayze there as Sam because that's what uh, he and Molly are feeling. And we see them share this, uh, this beautiful last dance together to the same Righteous Brothers song, the Unchained Melody from before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's this really nice moment, one of the most emotional scenes in the film, in my opinion. And um, it, 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 it is truly a beautiful scene. But then it gets interrupted because Carl arrives at the door and starts trying to get in. Sam, shocked by this, 
is knocked out of Otome's body. And just like the ghost before, his energy is pretty much completely drained. Um, so he can't do much about it. Otome and Molly, however, escape out onto the fire escape and they run up to the unfinished apartment above them that they were working on in the beginning of the film. Carl breaks down the door and begins to chase after them. And inside that uh, unfinished apartment, uh, they climb in through the window. And Carl keeps telling Molly, Otome is a con artist. You can't trust her. And Molly says, I've already called the police. You're not going to get away with this sort of thing. Um, however, Carl manages to pull Otome down from some of the, uh, some of the scaffolding and starts choking her. Molly yells at Carl to stop, but instead Carl takes out his gun and points it at Otome. However, we see the gun get knocked out of his hand, indicating that Sam is back, his power is returned for him, and he's now entered the fight. And I think this, this fight scene is really uh, impressive to me because Sam is invisible through all of it. We're seeing it as Carl would see it, again, going back to that sort of role reversal of the, uh, the haunting sort of setup. Um, and Carl tries to take Molly hostage, points a gun to her head, and promises to let her go if he if Sam gives him the check. Naturally, Sam, because Carl cannot see him, just takes the gun from Carl, throws it away, and begins fighting with him. And he pushes the scaffolding onto Carl. And Carl throws a hook at Sam, and Sam dodges it, but it swings back as Carl's trying to escape out the window, breaks the glass, and a shard falls down and impales Carl and kills him. Um, Carl, similar to Willie and Sam before him, gets up and is now a ghost, and he sees Sam, and they have this really beautiful, bittersweet moment. And this is where Tony Goldwyn's performance really, truly excels. We kind of alluded to, alluded to this moment before, um, where we see that even after everything, after all that's happened, Carl's just happy to see Sam again. And we see that he is regretful about what happened, just that he was pushed so far in the situation. He was so desperate, but now he's dead and none of that really matters anymore. And once you take all that away, he's just happy to see his friend again. Um, but moment's not able to last because Carl was not necessarily a great dude in life because the shadows come back, they rise up out of the ground and they drag Carl to hell. And we see that Sam is visibly saddened by this. Um, but he also knows that it's what was going to happen. Yeah, like, Sam couldn't do anything. And so, yeah, like, he definitely, like, one thing I noticed, like, his face, like, fell when he realized, you know, that Sam, or Carl was being dragged to hell. And so I think, like, even then, like, he still loved his friend Carl, even be like, even though he tried to kill him, even though he tried to kill Otome, there was still, you know, some love there because they had been friends for so long. Um, and so after all of this happens, um, he turns back and he asks Molly and Otome if they're okay. And this is the first time in the, uh, in the whole film where Molly reacts to his voice and we realize that she can hear him. And, um, they both say like that they're okay. And um, she also is able to finally see Sam and Sam is basically like, you know, wrapped in this like beautiful glowing light. He's clearly a ghost because he's like, you know, trans he's like translucent. You can see through him, but she can actually like finally see him. And so um, they have this, um, 
this moment where uh, she sees the light orbs that have come down. And this is basically the time where we realize that it's his time to go. He has completed his mission on earth. He's done with what he needed to do. And it's his time to go the other way. He's going to go to heaven. And so uh, he bends down. They share one last kiss, even though it wasn't, you know, like they're not sharing two bodies. So it's not like the most perfect kiss or beautiful kiss. But it's just basically showing that even though they can't physically touch each other, they wanted to share one last moment of intimacy and love before he is obviously going to go away. And he talks to Otome one last time and he tells her, like, I'm actually going to miss you. Which, again, shows how far they came because at the very beginning, he's making fun of her. He's calling her a terrible person. She's yelling at him. They don't agree on anything. But they have slowly become friends, basically. And she tells him, like, I'm going to miss you, too. And he does tell her at the end, your mother would be proud of you. Because just looking how far Otome came from the very beginning of the film to then, he wanted to let her know that, like, you know, this, like, she has done very well with what she was able to do to help him and to help Molly. And then he turns back to Molly and he tells her that he loved her, that he's always loved her. And this time she gets to finally respond with ditto. And like, it's just such a beautiful, heartwarming scene because Demi Moore here is just like, you know, absolutely bawling. And it's like, I was crying at the scene. Like I, every time I've seen this film, I always cry at this scene because it's so beautiful, so emotional and so sad because like the whole time, like our protagonist is a ghost and you're just like, why couldn't he still be alive? You know, like you're really rooting for them. But at the end, you know, he's going to have to go away and that she's going to have to live her life without him. So this is such a just beautiful, tragic moment that she's having to say goodbye to him. And one of the best lines in the movie happens here where he tells her. Um, you take the love inside you with you when you go, basically saying that. You don't take the material stuff. You don't take the possessions. You don't take anything but love when you when you go. And then he tells her, like, they say to each other, I'll see you later. So basically saying, like, I'll see you when it's your time and you're going to come join me. And his, he's finished his task on Earth. And so he turns and he leaves and he basically, walk, you know, he goes to heaven. And that's how the movie ends. And um, what do you think of the ending? Oh, I mean, it, it made me cry. It made me cry so much. It. It is such a beautiful scene, and the score here is really, really great. I mean, the score throughout is pretty solid, but this was the moment where I really started to notice it, and it really started to to hit. Like, if I made a playlist of film scores that I like, this would be the track that I choose to include by far. Um, and I, I know we, uh, on this podcast, you like to talk about uh, favorite quotes. Honestly, most of mine are right here. The you take the love yeah. inside you with you when you go. The when the uh, the full uh, uh, the full circle of Molly getting to say ditto. The uh, the th- the rule of three there, where it comes up three times. Mm-hmm. Um, it and even just the see you later is just such a like it's a very casual thing. But unlike like unlike Sam being casual before when he was alive, there's just so much more vulnerability and feeling to it now and you get the you get the idea that he really is this changed person who will allow himself to process and feel these emotions in a way that he never would have opened up about before yeah and i i think it's especially telling like the other uh theme that we kind of have going here of anger and love which is that you know, the poltergeist who is still troubled and still on that subway, 
he moves his object out of anger, and that's what Sam did for a while. But starting with that, uh, with levitating the penny, and all the way through here, we see Sam with his greatest moments using his power, using love as his strong emotion, which ultimately makes him more powerful than he was when he was angry. Um, right. Yeah, and it really does show that everything that he did from the penny on like was operated out of love for Molly and out of like her well-being and wanting to make sure that she was okay. And so that's really why when he says like, you know what, when you leave, you're the only thing you're going to take with you is the love. And so it's also kind of a reminder, like let go of that anger. Like if she's still angry about the death, whatever, let go of that and hold on to the love, which I think is just amazing. It really is. And I, yeah, this, this was, um, Okay, well, my favorite scene in the movie is the pot is the pottery scene because I yeah. mean, it's iconic. But th- this is a very close second. Yeah, I think there's just so many good parts of this film that like it's hard for me to be like, what's my favorite? I think just as a whole, this this movie, like it's an iconic drama, romantic drama for a reason. Like it has like just the heart, the emotion, all of it is there. And so like I, looking back, you can be like, okay, I understand why this film was even nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay and even for Best Film, even though it didn't win, like, I really believe that it did deserve a nomination because it is a great film. Yeah, and it, it did actually also win that uh, that original screenplay um, yeah. Academy Award, and I, I ve- very deserved. Yeah, I very thought it was amazing. Yeah, again, it's an amazing move, and it's iconic. So if you, I mean, I don't understand if you're, like, you made it this far and you've never seen this movie like we spoiled it all for you, but even if we did spoil it for you, it's worth it to go back and watch it for yourself because that's how good this film is. But like most people, if you're listening to this, I, I'm going to assume that you've seen this movie and will agree with us that this is just a great, well-performed movie. And it's not just Whoopi Goldberg, like Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore and Tony Goldwyn give amazing portrayals on top of Whoopi Goldberg's. So give like do yourself a treat and even maybe rewatch this movie if you've already seen it like i would definitely recommend it so that can actually lead us right into our rating so we know that abed nadir is a huge film buff on the show community and so we like to rate things according to how we think abed would rate them so again just to remind everybody that our rating is a number one is the opposite of batman so that's really low number two would be um slightly above brett ratner three would be uh, think Holly Hunter, four would be Kick Puncher Detroit, or five would be Buttered Noodles, because that's his absolute favorite thing in the world. So if you were Abed Nadir, where would you rate this film? I think from Abed's perspective, I, I think we're looking at a three here, because I think he'll appreciate the filmmaking. I think he'll appreciate the performances. And I think he'll understand that it is such an iconic movie. But I think there are definitely some aspects of it, because it's some of the effects are a little dated which doesn't bother me, but I feel like it would bother Abed a little bit, especially if he's trying to take this more seriously than he would something like Kick Puncher. I think he might not love that Carl being the villain is a little predictable. Again, I don't think it matters that much, but I feel like Abed would. And and the big reason I think that Abed would give it a three is that Abed is not the most sentimental guy. And the the core of this film is uh, feelings and emotions, and I'm just not sure how much that would resonate with him. Right. I'm going to give it slightly higher. I think it's probably, be, for me, it's going to be closer to like three and a half to a four. Only because I do think Abed would recognize like the brilliance of the screenplay. The fact that like the ghost is like investigating his own murder. 
the fact that like we're rooting for the ghost over like you know the traditional like horror story so i think that he would look at like the filmmaking aspects and actually enjoy it whereas like you said he's not going to fully get it because he's not as sentimental and like he wouldn't be as into like the love story portion but i do think he would still respect the film so i would say probably like a three and a half uh just like slightly above like you know think holly hunter um where would you personally rank this um you know uh as we went into recording this i probably would have said a four um just because like i said some of the effects are teeny bit dated most of them don't bother me but i think like the design of the shadows could have been improved a little bit i don't necessarily like that they have faces the second time we see them um and yeah i think that would have been why i would have given it a four at the time but having gotten to talk about it now and having gotten to really go through the running themes of the film and what it has to say about love and the material world versus the emotional and spiritual i'm gonna bump it up to a four and a half out of five yeah i think i'm gonna give it the same um i really believe that if you're looking, because I've watched a lot of rom- like romantic dramas in my lifetime, because I'm a female of a certain age. Uh, my demographic, when I was younger, there was a lot of those kind of films coming out in the 90s. Um, but I really feel like this is a pretty complete um, movie in terms of that, where you're really getting like the full dramatic, like very heartbreaking um, storyline, but you're also getting the beautiful romance, but then you're adding in an element of like almost like a psychological thriller where you're trying to figure out like, well, who murdered him? Why was he murdered? And so it, there, it just feels like there's a lot going on in the storyline, but it's never like too overwhelming or it's not too busy. Like everything just for me, like melts perfectly. But like you said, there are a few things where like, oh, that's slightly dated or, you know, like that could be, could have been improved. Um, like you said, like, it's very weird and bizarre when Tony Goldwyn's character is being dragged to hell and you see like the faces and I was not a big fan of that. I also kind of felt like his acting there was a little bit like over the top with like his facial reactions as he's being dragged away, you know? So I think like there's like some nitpicky things. So I would say like drop it down to four and a half, but I definitely think that this is an amazing film. I definitely recommend it as like a movie that everybody must see, I think at least once in their life because it's so such a great film. One of the pieces of trivia that actually came out of this is that uh, Jerry Zucker, who uh, directed the film, said that when like looking back at this film, I think like even I think it was like about like 10 years ago when he saw the movie again, he said that there there are a couple things that date this movie. And one of them is the fact that the computer screens are definitely from like the 90s. And also um, Arsenio Hall, who was a really famous um, uh uh, talk show host back in the 90s but he said if you remove those things it still will hold up today and i agree with that because the things they talk about um are just the philosophical things that we still deal with you know tragic loss heartbreak love all of those things are still you know relevant 30 years later and so even if you're going in and be like oh my gosh those cars or those outfits you remove that you saw you have a timeless story that you could literally make this film again now and it would still be relevant and it would still you know it would still hold up so i think that's one thing that you know for me ranks so high is that this film holds up 30 years after it was released i absolutely agree and even some of those more dated aspects of the film i think that because while they are there you know arsenio on the tv and some of the outfits and stuff um because they aren't really plot essential i mean 
yes, the computers are, but not necessarily the look of the computers. I think that that almost helps sell the message because, you know, while in our current world, we may not have Arsenio on TV, we may not have computer screens that look like that. We do still have those philosophical questions and those emotions. And I think it almost does help drive that message home. Yeah. Um, Okay. So just to round out our podcast, I always like to um, throw in just a little bit of trivia because I think people, you know, I find these, this kind of stuff interesting. So uh, one of the things I thought was very interesting was that the role of Otome Brown was not written with Whoopi Goldberg in mind, but Patrick Swayze loved her, thought she was a great actress and actually recommended her to be cast after he was cast. And so that's actually why Whoopi Goldberg got an interview uh, to actually, uh, or an audition to be on the film. I thought that was interesting. Uh, Patrick Swayze also said after the film um, that the pottery scene was the sexiest thing that he'd ever done on film. So he always looked back at that and said that he was really proud of that moment because he got to be a part of it. So I thought that was interesting. Hmm. Um, screenwriter, the screenwriter, um, Bruce Joel Rubin, um, said that he had seen Patrick Swayze in an interview where he was talking about the death of his father and he burst into tears on like TV during this interview. And he said that because Patrick Swayze could cry over a loved one like that, he wanted him as the star of that film. The fact that Patrick Swayze wasn't too macho to like, you know, try to hold the tears back that he was willing to like give into his emotions. He said he's the perfect person for, you know, the like how intense this this screenplay is. I can definitely Uh, agree with that. Yeah. Uh, You know, I feel. Yeah. sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. I mean. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I would say that, like, that sensitivity that Patrick Swayze did display, and, uh, you know, rest in peace, he was truly one of the greats. I think that's what did really set him apart from that um, class of 80s action heroes, you know? Because I don't yeah. think you could have had a Stallone or a Schwarzenegger or a Willis in this kind of role. Um, which actually, I think, goes into one of the other bits of trivia you got, right? Yes, which I will get to in a minute. Yeah, um, yeah. So the role of Molly Jensen was given to Demi Moore largely because she could cry out of either eye on cue, um, which I thought was really interesting. And before this, she had been um, she was a well-known actress, but she wasn't a bankable star. But this movie like literally like thrust her into stardom and she was able to actually lead films after this because of um, how well she did in Ghost. Um, Zucker and uh, Bruce Rubin, the screenwriter, thought that Tony Goldwyn was too nice to play the villain. But Goldwyn had to convince them that Carl had to be both nice and evil to be believable for like people to not figure out like that he was the killer until like later in the, the uh, plot. So I thought that was really interesting that he pushed really hard for his character to be in, like, to be in that conflict. Hmm. Uh, when it came time to cast the film, writer Ruben suggested Swayze, but the makers um, had just watched uh, Roadhouse, which is a very different kind of film and a very different performance from Swayze. And they basically told him that Swayze was not right for the part and there's no way he could pull off the emotion that they needed. So um, because of that, they actually offered to so hear the, the people that they offered before Swayze actually finally got an audition. They offered it to Kevin Bacon. Alec Baldwin, Nicholas Cage, Kevin Costner, Tom Cruise, Johnny Depp, David Duchovny, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Tom Hanks, Paul Hogan, Kevin Klein, Dennis Quaid, 
Mickey Rourke, John Travolta, and Bruce Willis, who was Demi Moore's husband at the time. They offered it to all of these people, and they all said no. Wow. Yeah. Because they said that the movie is going to be too cheesy. So Zucker finally let Swayze audition. And as soon as the audition was over, he knew that he was the right person for the part. And so I thought that was really interesting. The fact that like, even the screenwriter knew, like, give it to Swayze, give it to like, no, 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 no. We're going to offer it to like, you know, 20 other actors. But in the end, they're like, oh no, you were right. It was actually Swayze all along. So, but it honestly felt like this was the part meant for Swayze, right? This part really like elevated Swayze to even more of a star than he had been before. Cause he was in dirty dancing. He was in roadhouse, but this really elevated him to, you know, even like a bigger star than he already had been. Oh, absolutely. For sure. Um, Whoopi Goldberg became the first actress in history to win the best supporting actress at the Academy Awards, the BAFTA Awards and the Golden Globe Awards for her role in this film. So it's had, it has been done since, but she was actually the first one to pull it off. Uh, Tony Goldwyn, who plays Carl, claimed in um, interviews that for years after the movie, he was often maltreated in public for conspiring to kill uh, uh, Patrick Swayze's character, Sam, until he voiced the role of Tarzan in the Disney movie. And then people, the, I guess the public forgave him because, you know, he was in a wholesome Disney movie. <laughs> um, Nicole Kidman actually auditioned for the role of Molly uh, Jensen. But according to the screenwriter, the only reason she didn't get the part is because nobody knew who she was. And I find that highly ironic now because she's probably like one of the most famous actresses ever of all time. And probably one of the highest paid actresses, even over Demi Moore. <laughs> so, Oh, yeah. I mean, her career has sustained longer than Demi Moore's had. For sure. And Kevin also won an Academy Award herself. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, they said that they saw 30 actors for the role of Subway Ghost, but no one really got the anger until they cast uh, Vincent uh, Chiavelli, or Chiavelli, who was six foot five inches tall. So they said that his height really added to like the menacing, you know, like uh, character and that he, he got the anger down. And so that's why he ended up getting the role. So that was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one of the most bizarre pieces of trivia, which I saved for last, is that Otome Brown was supposed to die in early drafts of the screenplay. And it took a while for Jerry Zucker to convince um, Ruben that that was not the best way to end the movie. So apparently... She was supposed she was killed by an other bad guys, but then she possesses her own corpse to attack them. And I cannot yeah. imagine the ending that way. <laughs> yeah, I don't really see that working. I'm I'm just not sure how that would fit in with her arc. And you know, maybe early draft her arc was different, but I just yeah, I don't that doesn't feel right to me with the tone of the film. Yeah, and so just a little some other things here. So one of the things that I found out just from looking up like the director and all the, that whole process of, you know, writing the screenplay is that um, Ruben, when he after he was done writing his screenplay and he had sold it, when he found out that Zucker was going to be the director, he actually cried because he thought that Zucker would try to turn it into a comedy like Airplane or one of the other ones like his brother had done, because that's all they had never known about Zucker as a director because he'd never done anything dramatic. And so he said, but after he met with Zucker, they had dinner together and they started talking about, you know, just like the screenplay and um, the plot. Um, he realized that Zucker actually was like, was just wanting to do whatever he really, what Ruben wanted to do. 
And so they were able to work together very well. And he said that what Zucker brought to the film never detracted from it. He actually just only ever gave, you know, good advice. He taught him how to pace things better. He taught him how to add little bits of comedy in there to make it so it's not so heavy all the time. But, you know, you get little those little pockets of comedy that help temper like out the all the, the really heavy, like dramatic uh, great like the grief filled parts and so he said in the end he was really happy that they had gone with zucker because they produced a film that you know they were both proud of so i thought it was really interesting yeah i mean i think zucker was definitely the right choice i think that he really does help balance out uh the heavier aspect of the film yeah and then the last thing that i have here is that ruben was talking about how he got the idea for the screenplay and he said that he had actually uh, he was sitting in a production of Hamlet. So he's watching Shakespeare. And there is a part in Hamlet where the father of Hamlet dies. He's, he's killed. And so the ghost shows up to the son and he says, avenge my death, son. And he said that he just had this like brief moment of epiphany. And he said, what if we translated this into the 20th century where a ghost is having to like avenge his own death? That he like, we're going to follow his journey of trying to do this. And that's how the ghost was uh, basically formed. So I thought that was really cool that, you know what, it all ties back to Shakespeare, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like even now, you know, even in 1990, like, you know, so one of the, the most iconic, dramatic, you know, movies of the last 30 years came from, you know, something inspired by Shakespeare. So I thought that was really cool. Um, did you have anything else to add? Um, no, not, not that I can think of. Uh, I do think it's really cool that... Uh, this was inspired by Shakespeare because I feel like you got a lot of good, like alternative Shakespeare inspired films in the nineties, because you got this with Hamlet in 1990, 94, you got Lion King also with Hamlet. And by 99, you got a 10 things I hate about you with Taming of the Shrew. Yeah, absolutely. And also even in the nineties, you actually get the star studded Hollywood actors doing actual Shakespeare plays as well. Um, Like uh, much to do about nothing. Kenneth Branagh actually did a whole uh, shot, like a whole movie with the actual Broadway or the actual uh, Shakespeare play where he cast like Emma Thompson, Denzel Washington's in it, Keanu Reeves, like these really famous actors are like actually doing Shakespeare. There's also a Midsummer Night Dream that has a huge Hollywood cast. You also get like Romeo and Juliet set with Leonardo DiCaprio and, um, uh, oh my gosh, mine is running blank. She's blonde actor. Claire Danes. Claire Danes. Yeah. So like, you get, and even Othello, I think um, Julia Stiles is in Othello with Josh Hartnett. Like, you're getting a lot of those things in the 90s. So if you ever want to go and see, like, modern Shakespeare plays or Shakespeare plays that have, you know, Hollywood actors, go and watch a lot of those films from the 90s because you have a huge Shakespeare influence um, during that time period. So I thought it was, that's really an interesting thing to bring up. Um, So I just wanted to say again, thank you so much for coming on, Tyler. I know, like... To be completely honest, we've already recorded this twice before and the audio messed up both times. So this time the audio is actually working. So we're very happy. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for coming on and uh, talking about ghosts with me today. Um, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. And uh, as for something to plug, I would say I have a YouTube channel, T1 Media. We might be changing the name sometime soon, but not anytime too soon for when this podcast will go up just because there are a couple other T1 medias at the moment. Mine is the one with the yellow icon. We will be uploading our first official video soon, actually 
to celebrate the month of October and the release of the new Shout Factory Friday the 13th box set where my friend and I will be watching all of those movies for the first time over the course of a weekend. Um, so that should be up either around the time that this podcast is released or shortly after. Uh, I'd also like to plug my letterbox. Uh, it's just Tyler Weinkoop. That's W-Y-N-K-O-O-P on Letterboxd if you want to see some of my thoughts and feelings about the movies I have been watching. Awesome. Uh, again, thank you so much for coming on uh, to our audience. Thank you so much for listening. If you could leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, we'd appreciate it so much. Thanks. Bye.